Welcome to Seasons of Spirituality on Web Talk Radio. An open exchange of faith-based ideas and dialogue. Join us each week as we venture into a new world of spirituality. Tis the season. Dr. Thomas R. McFall. He's here to talk about his book, The Evolution of Faith, Christ, Science, and World Religions. Dr. McFall received his Ph.D. from Boston University. His teaching and scholarly interests include comparative religions, ethics, philosophy, science and religion, and future studies. He's published eight books and many articles. He currently teaches graduate-level comparative religion and ethics courses at Southern Methodist University in Dallas. Dr. McFall, it is such a pleasure to welcome you to Books on Air. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be a part of this. You know, this book is so interesting, and I'm really curious. There's always two stories to almost every book that is written. The first story is the story that anyone who buys the book gets. Anyone that reads the book gets the story that the book tells. But there's always a back story. There's always a way that the book came to be. Can you tell me how this book came to be? Uh, there are a couple of stages in the process. Uh, the first stage is it's really the third book in a trilogy of books that my colleague, uh, Dr. Al Brunsting, and I uh, have written. Uh, the first book was called God is Here to Stay, and that was published in 2014, where we take a look through scientific evidences of the structure of the universe and conclude that a more reasonable case can be made for the existence of an intelligent creator called God and pure randomness. Uh, the second book uh, deals with uh, the question of randomness. It's called God and Randomness uh, in relationship to the structure of the universe. So we realize that within our highly structured universe, there is also a great deal of of randomness. And the second book deals with that. The third book is really an extension. That is the book that we're talking about today, which is called uh, The Evolution of Faith, uh, the subtitle of which is uh, Christ, Science, and the World Religions. And after we wrote our first two books, which were pretty much generic in terms of uh, theological issues, we decided that we wanted to focus on one specific religion and then apply some of the basic ideas of that religion to the topic of science and then to add uh, the world religions to it. So one has to see this uh, book as really a part of a trilogy of books. And uh, this just happens to be the third book, but each of the three books can be uh, read independently. Uh, the backstory number two uh, is that my friend uh, Al and I were up in Alaska uh, back in, in 2016 and had the opportunity to, to see uh, Denali, uh, that was not clouded over the time we were there. So I guess we're part of the 20% club that sees it without clouds. And it is, if, if, I don't know if you've had the opportunity to see it, but it is quite extraordinary. Uh, and given our partnership, which goes back uh, a long time, and we've known each other a long time, I am the humanist and he's a physicist, and uh, it's an unusual team that writes in the science and faith sphere. Usually people write out of science or they write out of faith, but we combine the two. And in looking at that uh, Denali and having had a, other kinds of experiences similar to that, it brought to our minds 
uh, four basic questions. The first one is, my goodness, how does nature work? How does nature really produce such an extraordinary phenomenon called Denali, as well as other amazing, amazing natural sites that uh, are part of our planetary experience? Uh, and that led to another question, which was, is there a power that is greater than nature that might have created nature? And is uh, and which then led to the third question, uh, which is, uh, how does this power uh, relate to nature? And that's spun into a fourth question: is How does this, uh, assuming this power exists, relate to humanity? And we call these the four big questions. So those four big questions, in some sense, uh, an important sense, focus the the narrative uh, and the subsequent chapters that we then develop as a result of that uh, very personal experience of, of uh, having been witnessed uh, witnessing uh, one of nature's really, really outstanding accomplishments called Denali. Uh, and building on the first three books, or the first two books, the third book then weaves in Christian themes with uh, issues related to both science and the world religions. Uh, the first two books did not include the topic of the world religions, but as we began to develop the book and examine more in depth uh, the relationship of science to faith, we began to see that there was an inevitable connection between those interests uh, and a further explanation, uh, exploration rather, of the world religions, which I have been teaching for a long, long time now uh, and have a pretty good sense of and have written other books that focus on themes and topics that are related to the uh, diverse faiths of our world. So that's the backstory that... Uh, out of which the book emerged. I really, really liked the fact that you included the Denali, for lack of a better word, adventure, because it sounded wonderful. When I first opened the book and when I first looked at the first page and I saw the picture there of the mountain, I thought, what's this? And so right away you drug me in and I and I started reading what you wrote about that and your experiences. And it made me, I've never had the opportunity to go it certainly made me want to see the mountain. And I have heard that 80% of the time it's cloud-covered. And it sounds like you guys really did get lucky. You are one of the 20 percenters who got to see it uncovered. And it sounds like it was a, a really visceral um, experience, a spiritual experience as well as a physical experience. Is that fair to say? I think that is fair to say, yes. It's quite an emotional uh moment to see something that's as a, a great uh, as as the, that mountain. Uh, and to stand in front of it uh, is to be struck by awe. Uh, and not to have that sense of wonder, I think, is to miss an important part of what it means to encounter nature at that level. Very uh, inspiring. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. How did you and Dr. Brunsting get together in the first place, the humanist and the physicist. You sound like you would be on opposite ends of arguments at a table. How did the two of you get together? Well, uh, I had written a number of books before uh, uh, Al and I started. I'll call him Al, if that's okay. Please Rather do. than Dr. Brunstein, because he's such a very good and close friend. I had written uh, three books before and a on future studies and a number of other topics, and especially that focused on the world religions. And I was talking about some of those themes with a colleague of mine, and he said, uh, who was not uh, Al Brunsting, he said, you know, there's one thing that's missing from those books, and that is some 
emphasis upon science or analysis of science in relationship to some of the ideas that you've developed in those books. And I thought immediately, as soon as he made the comment, you know, you are right. And then I thought, my goodness, maybe if we move forward and try to consider other writing projects, that, that could involve uh, references to science and, and building on that. But I don't have the expertise in that area. But my good friend Al, whom I've known for so long, has the expertise. And I just approached him one day and I said, Al, would you like to spend some time with me uh, in a partnership writing a book on uh, science and faith? And he immediately jumped on it. And that's how we connected on this trilogy writing project of which this evolution of faith uh, is the third book in that sequence. But it was an evolution, that itself was an evolutionary process. And it took that nudging of, hey, have you considered the science questions in relationship to what else you're doing that stimulated the conversation that I had with Al that finally led to our unique partnership. Also, we were members of a, of a church back in uh, Naperville, Illinois, which is a suburb of Chicago, about 30 miles west of Chicago. And out of, uh, out of that connection and that relationship, uh, we discovered that we had something that could uh, contribute to the other's achievements and accomplishments. And we combined our partnership uh, in a unique way that in the field of science and faith, you don't really see very often. And uh, that's one of the, from the standpoint of our writing, uh, unique features of what we've tried to do. Yeah, that really struck me. When you called yourself the humanist, <clears throat> excuse me, and you called him the physicist, I thought, oh, wait, I have to ask a question about this, because it sounds like such opposition. But yet when you look at the four questions that you address in this book, two of them are scientific and two of them are theological. We tried to do that. We tried to see that there was a connection between the two. In a sense, the first of the four questions on how nature operates is really the origin of science. We as human beings have a curiosity about how our world works. One operates at the at this level of trying to identify the laws of nature and figure out how nature functions. And the other one is a different kind of a curiosity. It's a curiosity about whether or not there's something that might transcend nature that somehow brought it into existence and is related to it in some ways. So in some sense, in addition to having a two-by-two two sort of format of science and theology, you could also say it's, it's one and three. And that is the first question leads to science. And then the second question about whether there's something greater than science uh, or greater than nature uh, opens up the theological question. And then the last two are, well, how does this assumed uh, transcendent power, if you want to think of it that way and define it in those terms, then relate to both nature and uh, humanity? So that's how we eventually combined uh, our interest in science uh, with our interest in humanity. So we brought our various strengths to the table. And anybody who's been involved in writing, especially with a partner, uh, knows that you can do it in many ways. You can say, you take the first five and I'll take the last five. And we did some of that, but our writing is truly integrative. We uh, respond to each other's comments. We make criticisms. We review. We rewrite. And uh, as we proceed, we make sure 
that we uh, are on the same page in terms of our agreements about where we want to go uh, and how we relate to each other as as partners and not as just two different people who are putting uh, a book together, but uh, two people who are trying to integrate their various strengths and backgrounds uh, into uh, a coherent piece of writing. And, and that's, uh, that's how we, we have proceeded. That is our style. Uh, it is a style that we are used to. We like to uh, critique each other's writings because it provides us with an opportunity to constantly improve. Uh, and with that kind of a style, or if you want to call it method of operation, uh, we have tried to, as they say, squeeze as much <laughs> wisdom and knowledge out of each other as we possibly can. Sounds like and a perfect, it's so far so good. Yeah, it sounds like a perfect partnership. I mean, it sounds like you really have this give and take and, and that you work very well with each other. That, that really explains a lot. And I can see how each of you would be able to critique and criticize each other's ideas because you would look at it from a totally different perspective. That is correct. Uh, and theologians will look at something differently than somebody who comes out of a scientific mm-hmm. community. But uh, as we began to listen to each other, which is a very important part of the process, we began to see connections. And that's what enabled us to move forward uh, with a work that is finally not the result of uh, 75% one person and 25% the other, but we like to think of the partnership as uh, 100% a produced book, even though we have different emphases and backgrounds and skills that contribute to the different sections of the book. Tell me about evolutionary pluralism. Well, evolutionary pluralism is an alternative uh, that we are developing. It is a new concept, and it's related to the way in which uh, I would say the faith communities of our planet uh understand the findings of modern science uh, in relationship to their scriptures, which were written in a pre-modern scientific era. Let me see if I can give an example of this. Since our focus is specifically on Christianity, uh, it is in the book of Genesis described, that is, the creation is described in chapters 1 through 3. It is a six-day creation. Uh, on the seventh day, God rests. It is also, if you define a day in terms of a thousand years, and there are scriptural references for that, you would identify our world as somehow being between six and 10,000. That is our cosmos, our entire universe, between six and uh, 10,000 years old. Our position is, in fact, that modern science has a completely, completely different view of the universe that's evolved uh, really since the time of Copernicus. And we now think of the universe as 13.8 billion years old, as 92 billion years wide, which uh, light light years wide. It is an immense, immense universe. Our solar system came into existence about 4.5 billion years ago. Uh, which is many, many billions of years 
after the so-called Big Bang, which initiated uh, our universe, uh, life on our planet began about 3.85 billion years ago, and we human beings uh, began to evolve about 200,000 years ago on our planet. Now, that is a very different view of the universe than one that sees the world created in six days. Uh, Altogether, there are over 100 pre-scientific views of creation, uh, of which uh, the stories which appear in in Genesis are are one of the hundreds. Uh, What we see as a challenge is how the religions of the world, which have a view of creation in their scriptures that is pre-scientific, reconcile those views with uh, the modern scientific view of the universe, which is generally accepted by most scientists from A to Z, as we say, from um, anthropology all the way to zoology, even though many pre-scientific views exist. Within the Christian community, there are specifically four, I would call them, interpretations of how to combine a Christian faith with modern science and then try to explain the origins of creation. The first one is called Young Earth Creationism. The second is Old Earth Creationism. The third is Intelligent Design Creationism. And the fourth is Evolutionary Creationism. We examine all four of these views in relationship to the National Academy of Sciences criteria by which science is to be done, and we make a conclusion that evolutionary creationism is probably uh, closer to the NAS criteria than the other three. And we have tables and and, uh, mathematical equations and so on that demonstrate this. The idea of evolutionary pluralism as a fifth alternative is based upon the belief that within the Christian faith there is an assumption that salvation can come only through Christ. Evolutionary pluralism does not make that assumption based upon our examination of the scientific world, and especially the extraordinary power that must exist to create this almost unimaginably large universe that we live in. All of the great world religions have some view of a positive afterlife, that is, anticipating a positive afterlife. The word salvation we define as the anticipation of something positive that comes in life after death, and to assume Uh, that only one of the religions can have absolute knowledge of this would put it in an exclusivist category. We compare exclusivism to inclusivism and pluralism and make a judgment that evolutionary pluralism should focus on uh, accepting that all of the religions of the world have different positive anticipations of life after death. Now, part of the scenario in getting to where we did is to take a close close look at what is meant by the word salvation. Nobody, after having died, has come back two, three, four, five, six months to tell us what life uh, after death is like. We just don't know. So the word salvation is an anticipation of a positive life after death experiences. And uh, all of the great religions of the world have some expectation or anticipation 
uh, that if you follow the norms, the beliefs, and the behavioral patterns and morality of your faith, that you will, in fact, experience that positive afterlife, although there is no empirical evidence that can support it one way or another. There are some religions that believe in resurrection. Some believe in the immortality of the soul. Some believe you only get one life. Some believe you get many lives and the process through the process of reincarnation and karma. We explore all of these themes in this book. And what we also conclude, therefore, is that since there are so many diverse views of salvation, that we can take a look at the plurality of religions in the world and say that different people, in fact, have these different views and that no one can be demonstrated empirically. So the idea of evolutionary pluralism is, number one, on the evolution side, to embrace the modern view of uh, science, that in fact our entire cosmos began almost 14 billion years ago and has been evolving right from the outset and will continue to evolve in the future. The word pluralism has to do with the recognition that modern science, through electronic technologies and mass transportation, has brought us all closer together in what we call the global village. All of the great religions of the world developed in relative isolation of each other. That is, Hindus did not have access to Taoists, and Taoists did not have access to Jewish people, and so on. And now that we have electronic technology, namely the iPhone and the computer, we have instant access to all of the great religions of the world, and we can find out information at the touch of a, of a finger. Uh, in addition to that, we can now fly to different parts of our planet in a relatively short period of time as a result of mass transportation technologies. Uh, also, people in various regions of the world are fanning out through migration and going to other parts of the world. So the person who lives next door to you may be somebody who comes out of a very, very different faith tradition than you uh, adhere to. Or the, And this is becoming a much more common experience. And we'll have very, very different views of the world. How people under the conditions of pluralism relate to each other in the future will be very critical in terms of creating conditions that could lead to more peace and justice or hatred and hostility. And how do we move our planet in the direction of peace and justice and away from hatred and hostility when we are becoming much more aware of our differences? And one of the ways to do this is to look at some of the core doctrines of, the, of uh, religion in general and Christianity in particular. So when we talk about cultural pluralism, or we talk about especially evolutionary pluralism, it is a fifth alternative that does not see Christianity or any one particular religion as the only pathway to a positive life after death experience, but all of the religions have them included in their doctrines, and uh, we advocate being open to listening to the persons of other communities and not automatically, exclusively rejecting their points of view as untruthful. So that's kind of the idea behind evolutionary pluralism. The real core of the book, at the end of the book, 
In fact, the last chapter focuses on the evolution of faith and describes what we mean by evolutionary pluralism, is to create an alternative that broadens, uh, first of all, Christianity's view of pathways to salvation, but also takes a look at how other religions of the world can also think about their perspectives in relationship to uh, the religions that are different from themselves. This is just fascinating. I, I When I started to read the book, and I read the excerpt, and I was just pulled right in. And to listen to you talk about what you've done, what the book is, how it works, what you're trying to do, just makes me want to read the book. And I'm sure that it must have the same effect on our listeners. Let's tell them where they can find it. Now, it is on, my, on Amazon, and let me give you the name of the book, and let me do some spelling for you. The name of the book is The Evolution of Faith, F-A-I-T-H, colon, Christ, Science, and World Religions. Now, this is the third book in the, the series by Thomas, T-H-O-M-A-S, R, period, McFall, M-C, F-A-U-L and Al-A-L Brunsting B-R-U-N-S-T-I-N-G If you put that in the search feature on Amazon and click on it, the book comes right up. When you look in the upper right-hand corner of the representation of the cover, you see the words, Look Inside. Make sure that you click on those two words. When the book electronically opens, you will be treated to a couple of pictures of Denali and the story about how the trip, the trip took place. It's just, it will pull you right into the book. Now you can also buy it right there. Um, let's talk about how to find you. Now we were talking about earlier, you and I were talking about social media and websites, et cetera, but we thought that perhaps there was an easier way for our listeners to find you. What did we think they would do that would be easy? Well, they could go to Google, and they could uh, Google my name, which you've just uh, spelled, and Al's name. Uh, and once once you do that, then Google will, will take you to where you want to go. And if you go to Amazon or you go to the publisher, which is Wiffenstock in Eugene, Oregon, you will get further information about us. There will be a biography there. There will be some background information on us. Uh, and you can go in any direction you want once you have that information. But uh, if you go and desire to purchase the book uh, from Amazon, you can also get a Kindle version of it. It is available in hardback, it's available in softback, and it's also available electronically through Kindle. So there are different ways in which to access it. Uh, if you uh, make a choice to go ahead and, and purchase the book, which, of course, we would hope you would be interested in doing. <laughs> after, <laughs> listen, after our conversation today, I don't see how anyone can not be interested. I just think the the idea of what you're doing is so fascinating, especially the combining of your two philosophies and the combining of the humanist side as well as the as the physics side of things and pulling this all together because they seem so far apart 
when you think about it, just on a on one plane, you're looking at the very, very logical and then uh, the very, very human. And then when you start to talk about how the two of you have worked together, talked about the ideas, everything just makes so much sense. I have one Thank more. You. I, oh, go ahead. Could I make just one comment? You may uh, certainly, at this point. Please. And it would be this. Our position has been that persons who come out of any particular faith, and we call them maybe the great 11 faiths of the world, starting with Hinduism and Buddhism and, and Jainism, and you can go through Taoism and Confucianism and so on, and eventually get to the what are called the monotheistic religions of, of Zoroastrianism or Judaism, Christianity, Islam, and so on. We perceive that individuals can remain committed to their faith traditions in their community. What the book really calls for is not for persons necessarily to abandon their faith, uh, but to abandon uh, or to take a look at a more open-minded, pluralistic approach to appreciating and understanding the position of other people who come out of different faith traditions without at the same time abandoning your own. That's the really important message in this book. What the book does challenge is the notion that only one religion possesses all the exclusive truth there is to know about the nature of God, not only in this life, but in a potential life to come uh, after we are no longer physically on this planet. So it's, it's a book that Number one, reinforces, first of all, Christian people who stand within the traditions of the community that was started by Jesus, and at the same time, calling for an openness toward people who come out of other faith traditions, just as we advocate people in those faith traditions be open or committed to theirs, or be open to what other religions have to say as they perceive their truths out of the experiences that they have. So we advocate a pluralism and not an exclusivism when it comes to how people in different faith communities can relate to each other. And hopefully that will move our entire world toward greater peace and justice and away from hatred and hostility. Oh, I think that's such a really important point. And I, I, you've really already answered my last question, but... I want to give you a chance to go ahead and, and say one more thing about the book. When the listener becomes a reader and they purchase a copy of The Evolution of Faith and they sit down, they won't read this book in one sitting, but they'll sit down and they'll read the book. And this is a book that you would keep. I mean, this is a book that you would go back and refer to over and over and over as you look at this because there's so much here and so much to think about. When they read through the book the first time and They read the last page, and they either metaphorically or literally close the back cover. What, and I think this is probably a difficult thing for you to answer, but what takeaway, what major big takeaway idea, what one thing do you want them to leave with as a reader? Well, our view is that uh, ideas change people's minds. And I've been teaching for uh, uh, many decades now, and even though I'm sort of officially retired, I just can't quite give it up yet. And what I've discovered is that once an idea is out there, it has an impact on changing the way people think uh, about the nature of reality and their relationship to it. Uh, The purpose of this book is to be part of a conversation. 
part of a conversation that starts with science and with world religions and with faith that weaves in not only Christianity, but an analysis of other world faiths as well, and that it will broaden people's horizons to think about our world in ways that are different from the ways in which they thought about the world before they read this book. Uh, This book uh, is an attempt to, in fact, create this fifth alternative we call evolutionary pluralism uh, in relationship to the other four views that I discussed earlier, and to uh, make the case that evolutionary pluralism is a step forward uh, in the direction of uh, appreciating and understanding people who come out of different faith communities in a way that will allow for constructive uh, interfaith dialogue without at the same time uh, uh, one abandoning or eliminating the faith that one holds, possibly from the time they were youngsters and throughout the entirety of their lives. So it's meant to be a a part of a conversation uh, that is uh, going on within the early part of the 21st century with regard to how the faith communities of the world in an expanding global village uh, would uh, preferably relate to each other in a positive way. Of course, you bring to mind one of my favorite quotes, the human mind, once stretched to a new idea, never returns to its original dimensions. Oliver Wendell Holmes said that. I certainly am not intelligent enough to have come up with that. And for me, as as I have listened to our conversation and I've listened to the things that you've said, this is what you're trying to say is open your mind, look at something in a different way, and you'll never go back to exactly the way that you thought previously. This has just been wonderful. Thank you so very much, Dr. McFall. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be a part of this. 